The Nature of Evil, The Nature of Elves, and a brief encounter with Elrond, curiously not called Half-Elven. We follow Bilbo and the dwarves on their adventure to the Lonely Mountain in Chapter 3 of J.R.R. Tolkien's children's classic, The Hobbit, or There and Back Again. Let's wander. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Let's take a look at the map. We are exploring J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, where Bilbo Baggins, a hobbit, has joined a party of dwarves to reclaim their homeland. They've narrowly escaped being eaten by trolls and are now in need of a place to regroup before attempting to cross the Misty Mountains. Which leads us to Chapter 3, A Short Rest. In this chapter, we get one of those rare instances in which the storyteller has a moment of self-awareness and reflects on the craft of storytelling. These self-reflections pop up occasionally throughout Lord of the Rings, much like Aragorn springing out of the grass in Rohan. Here's what the Hobbit narrator has to say. Quote, now, it is a strange thing, but things that are good to have and days that are good to spend are soon told about, and not much to listen to, while things uncomfortable, palpitating, or even gruesome may make a good tale and take a deal of telling anyway. This is one of the ironies of stories. Stories about good things are often bad, and good stories are often about bad things, or at least good characters who experience bad things. However, in this small comment about storytelling, I see a hint to two themes of Tolkien, comfort versus uncomfort, and a little on the role of evil in Tolkien's mythology. Tolkien's word choice is deliberate, I think, when he says that things uncomfortable make a good tale. If you remember, Bilbo's descent from comfort to uncomfort is the foundation of the Hobbit book, and even in this chapter, we see Bilbo pining for comfort. He's tired and thinks of his comfortable chair at home. Gandalf's advice to seek for Rivendell sounds comforting, and the trees in the Elven Valley provide a, quote, comfortable feeling. These subtle clues suggest to us that Rivendell is a comfortable place, and in case we miss it, the narrator straight up says that Rivendell, quote, was perfect. Whether you liked food, or sleep, or work, or storytelling, or singing, or just sitting and thinking best, or a pleasant mixture of them all. To me, that sounds like the most comfortable place ever. But we'll see in a moment that Bilbo is not entirely comfortable with elves. However, as the ironic reflection about good things making bad stories suggest, our time in Rivendell is rather short in The Hobbit. In fact, it ties with two or three other chapters as the shortest chapter in terms of page count. But contrast that with Rivendell in The Fellowship of the Rings, which gets more than two chapters, including The Council of Elrond, which is one of the longest chapters in Lord of the Rings. Besides comfort versus uncomfort, I think the description of good and bad stories also hints at a deeper theme the role that evil has in Tolkien's mythology. In Tolkien's world, good and evil emerged from Iluvatar, the creator god. We learn in the story of creation that Morgoth, the first evil being, was necessary to make good things even more beautiful. Through excessive heat, water is turned to beautiful clouds, and through excessive colds, water is turned to beautiful snow. This theme is well said in a conversation from Tolkien's The Silmarillion, where two of the Valar, Discuss the impact of evil. One says, quote, 
Thus, even as Iluvatar spoke to us, shall beauty not before conceived be brought into the world, and evil yet be good to have been. But another responds, quote, and yet remain evil. So bad or evil forces have a way of shaping the good, of causing good to grow and expand, to exert all of its efforts and strength in its attempt to overcome evil. That is what makes a good story. So far in The Hobbit, Tolkien has methodically introduced us to fantastical creatures brought to life out of legend. Hobbits, dwarves, wizards, and dragons in chapter 1, and trolls in chapter 2. In fact, we have yet to meet a human on this journey. Chapter 3 is no exception, where Tolkien invites us deeper into his imagination by showing us elves. If you are familiar only with Peter Jackson's movies, then your image of elves in Middle-earth is likely somber, serious, and sorrowful, with complex, haughty fathers, that's haughty as in prideful, all of you Lee Pace as Thranduil fans, and excellent archers before the likes of Hawkeye or the Arrow. If you're familiar only with Rings of Power elves, then you might think that elves are deceitful politicians, or amazingly awesome fighters who can survive volcanic blasts. If you've listened to my previous episodes exploring the Silmarillion, then perhaps your image of elves is of complex, prideful creatures who are capable of doing more harm than good. And if this is your first foray into The Hobbit, I'm warning you now. These are not the elves you're looking for. Nope, because these elves are happy. Or to use Tolkien's word, merry. Before we are introduced to elves, Bilbo is a bit drowsy. The warm air and pine tree smell are lulling Bilbo into a dreamlike state. This is the first clue about the nature of elves. They are the stuff of dreams, not necessarily the waking world. But notice all the senses that Bilbo expresses when we are introduced to elves. Quote, hmm, it smells like elves, thought Bilbo, and he looked up at the stars. They were burning bright and blue. Just then there came a burst of song like laughter in the trees. Let's pause and look at this for a moment. Bilbo knows he is close to elves first by the smell. I'm not sure what elves smell like, but I hope it's something pleasant. Given that the scent of pine trees is in the air, I'll go with elves having a somewhat earthy smell like flowers. But more importantly, notice what Bilbo does as he thinks about elves. He looked up at the stars. Ah, the stars, beloved by the elves, were the first source of light that the elves knew when they first awoke, long before the moon or sun were created. Again, Bilbo's gaze upward and outward indicates that elves are somewhat not from this world. And finally, the elves are fully revealed not through sight, but through song. And not just any song, a song of laughter. Quote, there came a burst of song like laughter in the trees. Laughter is used no less than four times to describe the elves, and the song that Tolkien provided is rather silly in its meaning and rhymes, complete with made-up words like trill-lil-lolly. They even have a joke about the dwarves' beards in their song, and we're told later that, quote, some elves tease the dwarves and laugh at them, and most of all, at their beards. Interesting to note, the dwarves were so proud of their many-colored beards, tucking them into their belts and draping them over their shoulders in Chapter 1 of The Hobbit. But here, their beards are the subject of jokes, because elves don't have beards. Only the very, very oldest of elves, here on the shipwright, has a beard. Bilbo has complicated feelings about elves. He can hear them, and the laughter and songs. He can smell them, but he can catch only, quote, 
glimpses of them as the darkness deepened. The elves are simultaneously revealing, yet elusive, close, yet out of reach. This paradox continues, quote, He loved the elves, but he was a little frightened of them too. In Fellowship, Sam has a similar experience to Bilbo, when he and Frodo and Pippin meet some elves at night in the Shire. Quote, Sam walked along at Frodo's side, as if in a dream, with an expression on his face half of fear and half of astonished joy. Even the journey to find the elves is not what one would expect. On the surface, Bilbo sees a seemingly empty land right up to the mountains, but all over are hidden valleys. Yet in which of these hidden valleys is Rivendell? It seems to come out of nowhere, unexpectedly, almost as if the elves will only let you find them if they will it so. All of these hints suggest to me that elves are a distinct race, creatures who are somewhat set apart from the other races of Middle-earth. They have an aura of otherworldliness about them, something uncanny that draws us to them, but at the same time leaves us feeling unsettled. As a side note, I think Peter Jackson's elves in the Lord of the Rings movie trilogy do have this otherworldliness about them. They may not be merry, laughing, or singing, but there's something that separates them from the other races of Middle-earth. But for all of this, the elves are also closely associated with music and singing. Quote, Tired as he was, Bilbo would have liked to stay a while. Elvish singing is not a thing to miss in June under the stars. Elves love their songs. This can be explained by going back to the creation story for Tolkien's mythology. The world was created through singing, and the music of Iluvatar permeates all through nature. The elves are known as Iluvatar's firstborn, the Eldar, and his music lives within them. Contrast that to Iluvatar's secondborn, the race of men, who live outside of the music of Iluvatar, and as such have a greater agency to live according to their own wills. One elf is named in this chapter, Elrond, the master of Rivendell. We'll explore his story and his contribution to the quest right after this break. We're not done yet. If you like this episode, please leave a review and share with your friends. And remember to subscribe if you haven't already. We'll be right back. You can be the hero of your own Marvel Comics adventure. Marvel Strike Force is an extraordinary mobile game a haven for comic book enthusiasts and gamers alike. Lead your own fellowship of heroes and villains to battle against the forces of darkness that threaten the very fabric of the universe. From the menacing Doctor Doom to the formidable Apocalypse, every battle is a chance to prove your mettle. And right now, Marvel Strike Force is commemorating its six-year anniversary. That means free rewards await those who heed the call and sign up today. With weekly events and bonuses, this anniversary celebration promises a treasure trove of special rewards. Rally your allies, sharpen your blades, and dive into the action of Marvel Strike Force today. Use code MAXPOOL to unlock free new treasures. That's code MAXPOOL, all one word, on the mobile game Marvel Strike Force. Now, back to wandering. Elrond, master of the House of Rivendell, is, quote, as noble and as fair in face as an elf lord, as strong as a warrior, as wise as a wizard, as venerable as a king of dwarves, and as kind as summer. The narrator tells us that his part in Bilbo's tale is rather small, yet still important. 
let's look at this role in Bilbo's tale. The first role Elrond has is not overtly stated, but rather shown through the effects on Bilbo and the dwarves, and even their ponies. Elrond has a healing power. This is shown even more poignantly in Fellowship, but in The Hobbit, it's very subtle. Yet if you look, you can see how the company is healed physically, mentally, and we might even say spiritually. Quote, All of them, the ponies as well, grew refreshed and strong in a few days there. Their clothes and bruises are mended, their food bags stuffed, their plans are improved. Elrond also hints at his backstory. He reads the runes on the swords that were picked from the troll cave, calling Thorin's Orkist the Goblin Cleaver and Gandalf's Glamdring, Foe Hammer. Elrond even references his family history, that the swords were made by his distant kin in Gondolin. Taking a step away from the Hobbit book, the tale of Gondolin had been on Tolkien's mind for at least 20 years by the time he wrote The Hobbit. The Fall of Gondolin was one of the first tales Tolkien began to record, even dating back to 1917 and possibly the trenches of European battles in World War I. We've covered Gondolin in a number of episodes on this show, but one important detail to remember. Gondolin was overrun by an army of orcs, balrogs, and even dragons. That detail adds weight to what the narrator of The Hobbit tells us, quote, He hated dragons and their cruel wickedness. Now, perhaps the more important role that Elrond has in Bilbo's tale is his ability to read moon letters. Moon letters, we are told, are invisible runes that can be seen only by the moon, which is in the same shape and season as the moon when the runes were written. These moon letters are written using a substance called ethildine which is an ink-like substance that is derived from Mithril, the true silver that was mined in Moria. You've seen Ethildin writing before. The best example is the inscriptions and images on the doors of Moria through which the Fellowship gain access to Khazad-dûm. That writing was revealed by starlight and moonlight. Only the more sophisticated writings like those on Thorin's map were revealed by the exact same type of moon. But herein lies another Tolkien theme the theme of chance. Chance, it seems, was what brought Gandalf and Thorin together to kick off this little quest, coupled with an unlikely chance that a hobbit named Bilbo Baggins would find his courage and come on the adventure. What are the chances, then, that the dwarves would pass through Rivendell, the one place in Middle-earth with a loremaster who could read moon letters at exactly the right time of year and under the right type of moon so that they could decipher this hidden message? When you start to layer all of these unlikely chances on top of each other, it's clear that some other force is orchestrating these events. Some will or power is being made manifest to counter the growing evil in Middle-earth. But I digress. The moon letters reveal exact yet cryptic instructions for how to open the hidden door on the Lonely Mountain and provide a timeline. The dwarves have just a few months to race to the mountain and open the door or else face the dragon head-on. Well, eventually Bilbo's dreamlike days in Rivendell come to an end, with a, quote, morning as fair and fresh as could be dreamed. The dwarves, the wizard, and the hobbit ride away, quote, amid songs of farewell and good speed, to start the next stage of their adventure. But we'll get to that next week. Join me in the next episode, where we'll contrast this chapter with Peter Jackson's Hobbit movie. Thanks for wandering Middle-earth with me, today.
My friends, if you enjoyed this episode, let me know by subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing with your friends. Follow me on Facebook or Instagram at Lore of the Rings Podcast. For feedback on the show, please email me using the link in the show notes. Until next Thursday, remember, not all those who wander are lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.